What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and coming up, Fed Chair Powell is set to speak in just about an hour. We also have 30-year notes up for auction at the top of this hour. Both of those could definitely be market-moving events. Our market guest, though, is watching a different data point altogether as a gauge for where markets go next. We'll check in with him. He'll tell us what that is. Plus, all is quiet on the IPO front. Too quiet. This time of year is typically strong for public debuts. We'll look at what's going on and what could turn things around. And a surprising loser from the energy transition. It could be corn and ethanol. And that will have a big knock-on effect on one sector and a few key stocks in particular. We have details coming up. But coming off a couple of eight-day win streaks for the S&P and the Nasdaq, let's get to today's markets. And Dom Chu has the numbers. We're going to be struggling right now. We've lost some steam, Kelly, in this whole market. We had seen some gains, marginally so, across the major indices. But we're just about flat on the session right now. The Dow Industrial is pretty much flat, just down three points to 34,109. S&P up about three points, 43.85, and the Nasdaq composite up about 14 points, just one-tenth of one percent. So again, maybe a little bit weary about whether or not this streak is going to continue for the time being. Now, though, if you look at Bitcoin prices, we are seeing some really decently high levels, certainly out of the trading range that we've seen so far this year. Remember, for a good while, we were trying to bump around that kind of 28 to 30,000 mark, then we kind of bumped up higher. Now we're at 36,573. So a lot of move higher in that Bitcoin price has been this notion that perhaps there is more of a risk aversion that's being put aside. Bitcoin price is up about 121% on a year-to-date basis. Currently, again, 36,564. And then one of the big stock movers of the day on a consumer play, Affirm Holdings, which is up roughly 19% right now, it's been a strong move higher for this so-called buy now, pay later that enables consumers to, in essence, purchase things and pay over installment plans. Well, better than expected results at Affirm being driven by, amongst other things, people spending more money on goods that use that buy now, pay later, that gross merchandise volume. So, Kelly, Affirm shares one of the big stock movers on an otherwise quiet day for the markets, up 19%. Could it be a tell on consumers? I'm not sure. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, we'll all try to divine, and I'll see you soon, Dom. Thank you very much. Now, we're keeping a close eye on yields today with the 10-year up about five basis points. But watch the 30-year, about 4799. We're going to get a key auction result in just a couple of moments. We also have Fed Chair Powell's speech today at 2 p.m. Eastern. And this morning, more signs the labor market is cooling, continuing jobless claims climbing for the seventh straight week, highest level since April, while the monthly average for initial claims rose to just over 212. How should investors be balance the data with the Treasury supply that markets also have to digest. Let's bring in Mark Smith, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors, and Senior Economics Reporter Steve Leisman. It's good to see you both. Steve, let's just start with you as we wait for those full 30-year results. How much of the upward pressure on bonds goes back to the deficit? I mean, a good portion of it. I'm I'm, uh, 
informed by the uh, survey we did, uh, the recent CNBC Fed survey. And basically it was a third, a third, a third, a third what? Well, a third growth, a third of the issuance, and a third of the um, uh, uh, Fed hawkishness or the rhetoric from the Federal Reserve and their uh, uh, more hawkish outlook in terms of taking away cuts next year. I think those were three parts of it. And I think what's happened is a couple of those have gotten under control, at least short term. The uh, uh, growth looks like there's a little bit of a, a weakness in some of the data we've had recently. Um, the Treasury announced a refunding announcement that was uh, more in line with the market's ability to basically stomach. And we'll hear more about that in just a few seconds, I assume. And then the Fed has eased off a little bit. The trouble with the issuance question is when you look at the deficit and the numbers announced or, or um, uh, made, made more uh, final by the CBO yesterday, the issuance problem isn't going away. You have long-term structural pressure on the federal deficit. You look at how we got to this $1.1 trillion over 2022 to a $1.7 to $2 trillion debt budget. Well, there was interest expense was a big part of it. That's not going away, Kelly. In fact, I think that's going to go higher. There was more pressure Social Security from COLA increases. Um, there was some more pressure on spending. That was not the biggest part. The biggest part was the decrease in revenues. That may come back this year, bring the deficit down. But long-term higher deficits are definitely in the cards. All right. And uh, Mark, a comment from you. Yeah, listen, when you're looking at how you're looking at where the Fed's going to be going, as you said, Powell's talking about an hour, uh, you have to look at the most, I think, one of the most hawkish uh, Fed chairs, which is uh, Kashkari out of Minneapolis. And he said yesterday that, you know, they're really focused on core CPE. Um, it's a record that kind of looks about how the consumer is doing. And it was at 2.5% on the three month, which is lower than the sixth and the one year. So it's in a good direction. They thought that was the best news that they've seen in a while. And, um, you know, they're really looking to see if that ticks back up. If it does, it looks like that he's going to be for uh, higher rates. And I think that you might have other uh, folks in the Fed agree with them. All right. Let's turn to Rick Santelli now, the man of the hour out there in Chicago to talk about this 30 year bond auction, Rick, where we've seen a big move lower in stocks and a lot of people concerned that we wouldn't get enough demand uh, for this to go well. So tell us what we what have we learned? Well, first of all, the lowest grade I would ever give an auction would be D minus because an F would mean that the auction didn't move or all of it didn't move, they would never allow an auction to go to the end. If it isn't all, if all the paper isn't going to move, they will cancel the auction. Trust me on that, okay? So I gave this the lowest grade I could give it, a D minus. The yield, 4.769. Basically, it was at the high when issued yield today was 4.72. We were trading 4.715 right as the auction button up. This thing tailed a mile long. I haven't seen a tail like this in a long time. Listen to these metrics. The bid to cover was the weakest since Dece of 21. The indirects were the lowest since November of 21. Direct bids the weakest since October of 2020. And the dealers took almost 25%, the most they've taken since August of 2020. Here's something interesting. When you look at indirect bids, the weakest since November 21. There's also another issue that jumps out in my mind, uh, November of 2021. And that is the last time we had an auction of this size. We have 24 billion here. You have to go back to basically to that date to find a bigger auction. I find that very interesting. Now, we, we could argue as to all the reasons why this auction went poorly. And to be fair, the market was selling off yields rising right through the entire auction process, and it accelerated at the end. 
But is that an excuse? I don't think it's an excuse. I think it may be the reason why the markets were selling off to try to move that paper. You know, there was a big story in the paper last couple of days or online about how the Fed's looking at these term premiums that have expanded. They call it dark matter. I don't call it dark matter. It makes me very nervous to hear Fed officials call something so important dark matter like it's a mystery. You know what matters? Debt matters. That's what black matter is. Debt matters. And the market is telling us how much debt matters right now. Back so, to you. Rick, it's it's fascinating to see this response. And also, it's a response that was fairly telegraphed, at least to some bond experts who have been following this one. Let me just quote from Brian Reynolds, who this morning said, you know, he'd view this as decent if it can get over a 2.12 bid to cover, right? So there was some fear out there that we might have a one handle for the first time in a while. These are upsized auctions. You know, there's still this sense of it wasn't a total disaster. But admittedly, when you start your report by saying, well, it wasn't a failed auction, that's probably not a great sign. So it does tell you that even with demand being somewhat better than maybe the biggest uh, concerns out there in the marketplace were, the Dow is still down 150 points as a lot of we people. We haven't had are, a yeah, under they're not, they're two, not too we reassured. Had an under two bid to cover since 2008. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure why he picked that number. No, 212. But I would tell you. Two, 212 would have been yeah. his his kind of you know ratio for yeah. total disaster versus not. So on that, by that sense, it came in a little bit a little bit better than maybe that worst case scenario. Or worst case scenario would have been below. Now two, the like lipstick you said. isn't going to help on this one. You could it, it, that that bid to cover could have been two. It, it, it doesn't matter. Pretty much, I've never seen an auction where every category was nasty looking. Right. Every category was nasty. Now that we've cleared this rig, this is the last of the big three auctions this week. These are all the upsized auctions, obviously, uh, after what happened. Uh, do you still think there's something to be said for getting these behind us? Well, I think there is something to be said for that. But what still, I think, is the biggest issue that viewers really need to think about hard is we, we expected a worst-case scenario that this first package in this refunding, threes, tens, and thirties, could have been $114 billion. It was $112 billion. But that is, that is bait and switch. Like I said, let's look at the history here. The $48 billion that we had for three years was the biggest since Feb of 22. Yesterday's 10-year $40 billion was the biggest since August of 21. Today's 30-year $24 billion was the biggest since November of 21. Listen, that's the way you're supposed to look at it. A couple billion less than expectations, to me, it never made sense. So yesterday, when we were challenging 4.5%, I had to back out of that. If I was a trader, I would have definitely sold that all day long. 464 on the 10-year now, 482 on the 30. Steve? Well, as much as I disagreed with Rick's grade yesterday, I strongly agree today. Uh, just please look at the chart, the 30-year, the 20-year. Uh, the 10-year, all are spiking higher. I have two particular concerns here. The first concern is the overall one of volatility in the bond market, where the most liquid security in the world is trading with the volatility of a penny stock. That bothers me. More importantly, though, is this notion that the market was assuaged by the broader plan of the Treasury to issue this debt. And that sounded good. What we're seeing perhaps in the execution is not so good. And it may require maybe a rethink of these kind of large 
uh, auctions on the long end. If the market's going to require this, well, maybe the government has to issue this debt at a higher price, the way or the way it's coming in, actually a lower price, a higher yield, of course. Um, uh, or, or maybe you're right that it's behind us, but it does give me concern that in the execution of the Treasury's plan, the market's having a little digestion problem here. Indeed. Mark Smith, and what, you could, you, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I'd say, listen, I mean, uh, you have uh, regular investors who are hearing all of this and are, are, are getting scared to death about, you know, what's going what's to happen to them. They're seeing their credit cards at 20 percent plus. Um, you're seeing businesses have a trepidation about expanding. So this all kind of feeds on itself and might create a, a self-fulfilling pro- uh, prophecy that we're going to go down. The question right now and everyone's trying to wonder is how, how far. Right. Rick, I'll give you the last word here. And, and what do we look ahead to now that we've kind of gotten through this this week's slug of issuance and, you know, maybe ended on on this kind of weaker note? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, I wouldn't use the penny stock analogy. I actually think the market's doing pretty well, considering the term premiums are widening out and we have such large deficits and we're competing with any issuer, whether it's on junk bonds, corporate bonds, uh, EU securities, dollar denominated securities. We're all competing for a smaller and smaller pool of buyers. To me, I look at that. A penny stock would be a stochastic chart. We're getting big moves in each direction with a lot of follow through. But that's different. I'm actually pretty pleased that the market's holding together as well as it is. And the last word, well, I'll make it three last words. We need to pay a whole lot more attention to debt, debt, debt. And I think we will uh, in going forward. Gentlemen, thank you all. Steve Leisman, Rick Santelli, and Mark Smith joining me. Dow's down 117 points, so a little bit off the session low we hit after the results of that auction came through. Now, while the rest of the world tries to get inflation to come down, China wants its inflation to go up. Its October CPI slipped two basis points. PPI dropped more than 2.5%, despite the Chinese Bureau of Statistics' insistence that deflation isn't in the cards. This comes ahead of today's meeting between Treasury Secretary Yellen and the Vice Premier of China, who heads uh, the Commission for Financial and Economic Affairs. This will lead up to the APEC Forum in San Francisco, where President Biden and President Xi Jinping are expected to meet next week. Both sides have aired concerns about decoupling and unfairly restrictive business regulation. Joining me now to discuss this all, Brendan Ahern is Crane Share's CIO. Uh, thanks for joining me here, by the way. I appreciate it. Uh, and you're going to be at this meeting next week as well? Yeah, headed to San Francisco for APAC. Yes. Xi Jinping will be meeting with business leaders. That's, is that a bit of a surprise? Um, I mean, considering how much business from U.S. multinationals is being done in China, not necessarily. And certainly a lot of those... Uh, it's not just the Apples and Nikes and Teslas, Starbucks, Boeings, et cetera. You know, so that tech orientation, just being you know, right up the road from Silicon Valley, kind of explains you know, you're so close. Bring them all in. Uh, so the dinner next Wednesday night uh, with President Xi and the U.S. CEOs. Is the message intended to be that, that China's still open for business? 100 percent. They're rolling out the red carpet for foreign investors, foreign companies. They're trying to roll back a lot of the negativity that we've seen over the last two years, not just geopolitical between diplomatically, but also some of the Internet regulation that we've seen that's really weighed on investor sentiment toward I mean, China. Just weeks ago, we were talking about how China continues to put security over economic, mm. um, what should we say, over over the types of policies that could promote mm. economic growth down the line. So has that suddenly flipped or is security still paramount or are they trying to thread that needle? Well, every politician needs a good economy, right? You know, Herbert Hoover, Smoot and Hawley didn't get reelected. 
you know, look at Donald Trump or even Boris Johnson. So political economic instability are intertwined and China needs the West. They need to do a better job managing that relationship. And that, that's a progress that, you know, during COVID, you had COVID babies, but unfortunately you had COVID divorces. And I, I just think the relationship went through a little bit of a divorce and now we're in a little bit of therapy thus far. Even Derek Scissors, who's been bearish on China for a long time, just kind of on, on a lot of these structural issues, has said, look, the bearishness about its near-term growth might be overdone now. And he saw also some signs that maybe the leadership is thinking about talking to tech companies about, okay, tell us what business you do to benefit society. You know, maybe opening up a little bit to this idea of there's two sides to this and, and reining things in too mm. far um, is having these these consequences, deflation being one of them. Yeah, certainly, you know, in terms of the CPI, the composition of China's CPI is very, very different from the U.S. Food and particularly pork is a big, big weight. Pork prices in the month of October fell 30 percent year wow. over year. So, so the CPI is a little bit less of a worry. I mean, Ultimately, Chinese households have a lower grocery bill. I think that's an issue a lot of Americans would love to have. So you don't think this deflation is a sign that its economy is in some kind of deflationary debt trap? It's more just a temporary phenomenon? I think we should expect that imports are going to slow that, that China's economy as the world factory as the, is reflective of the global economy slowing. Um, at the same time, they have to raise domestic consumption. So it's a little bit of a two-geared economy. Export-driven manufacturing inevitably slowing. They need to do a better job raising domestic consumption to offset that. If you had to guess where we would be a year or two from now in terms of multinationals, maybe some of the tech companies that you know have traditionally been a big part of crane shares, things like that, what do you think that landscape looks like? Well, I think you know, China's not going anywhere. That you know, you've got 1.4 billion people in terms of the consumption power. At the same time, what we view in the West as a supply chain problem for Chinese companies was a revenue problem, right? What happened in COVID, you know, if they couldn't move, make and move and sell things, that's a problem for Chinese corporations. So an element of the nearshoring or offshoring is actually happening from Chinese companies going to Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, hopefully here in the United States to try to bat, you know, prevent another issue. Again, our supply chain supply chain problem was their revenue problem. They want to fix that. You think we're going to look a lot? We're going to look back on this as the nadir for growth. They're going to be able to turn a corner here, or could they potentially be an early sign of the rest of the global economy having a more serious growth problem? I mean, ultimately, going into 2023, they looked in really, really good shape, and lo and behold, the U.S. markets outperformed. You know, Q3. Who would have? How many people know that KWeb actually beat? SPY. Right. So maybe we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in terms of market regime change, way overdue in terms of non-U.S. equities underperforming over the last 14 years. Right. Um, but so, so some early kind of green shoots there. All right. We'll leave it there, Brendan. Thank you. We appreciate it. Brendan Ahern is the CEO of Crane Shares. Coming up, stocks are sharply lower, but Disney is still on pace for its best day since 2020 after beating on the top and bottom line, or on the bottom line, I'm sorry, and expanding cost cuts. Up next, we'll dig into the numbers and what CEO Bob Iger is suggesting about the future of ABC and ESPN. Diz still up 7%. Plus, the weeks before Thanksgiving have historically been popular ones for companies going public, but market has Headwinds have put a lot of those plans on hold. We'll check in with the Dean of Valuation about that. NYU Prof. Oswath DeModeran joins us about what he says it tells us about the broader market. Speaking of which, Dow's off the lows. <laughs> we sold off more than 130 points after that week 30-year auction, but we're down about 100 right now. 
The S&P, though, is down a third of a percent. So is the Nasdaq, breaking their eight-day win streaks, longest since 2021. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Disney are still up 7% after the company reported better-than-expected earnings thanks to a profit at ESPN and some growth at theme parks. That offsets declines in ad revenue. Let's dive a little deeper into the numbers and what they're revealing about the media landscape. Joining us now, Mark Douglas is CEO of Mountain. Barton Crockett is senior research analyst at Rosenblatt Securities. And CNBC senior media and entertainment correspondent Julia Borston is here with us as well. Welcome to all of you. Uh, Julia, just kick things off. Why, why the, such a strong reaction to the quarter, do you think? Well, look, I think there was so much uncertainty about what Disney would be reporting, especially because they have this new reporting structure where they break out ESPN from the rest of the entertainment business. Obviously, there are a lot of structural issues that the entire industry is facing. And when it came to those, Bob Iger shared a little bit of a bullish outlook when it came to things like consumer spending and even advertising. In our interview, he said that the linear advertising business was actually better than anticipated. We saw higher than expected average revenue per user at Disney. Plus domestically, that was because of a stronger advertising. And he said he was very much bullish about the opportunity around addressable or digital advertising. So I think that was a key piece of it. And don't forget that the streaming numbers were much better than anticipated, 7 million sub ads. And then they just cut costs a lot more than they had previously said was their target. All right. So to, uh, with all of that in mind, Barton, what do you do with the stock? Well, look, I think that Disney has a, a long term road. Uh, to delivering value. And I think that that road has one of two forks. One is they figure out the business um, and they showed some hint of being able to do that last night. Or if they don't, then I think you have asset value that will be realized in some type of breakup. Um, So I think, you know, the way they get there is in their hands, but I think you have um, an iconically valuable theme park business that drives most of their cash flow today. You've got uh, an iconic film library and you know, and a historical ability to create new hits that is very valuable. And then you have these distribution businesses, you know, Disney Plus and the TV networks that are in transition. Um, but I think if you look through that, you can find value. They can either figure it out themselves, or they'll be forced to do do some other steps. Yeah, and it was so interesting hearing John Malone kind of again talking about what a difficult uh, business this is right now, the streaming business. If at least if you're not. Netflix. Mark, you thought that uh, it was a bad idea for Disney potentially to sell ABC. Now you're not so sure. What's changed your mind? 
What's changed my mind is that I think the way you, you see things rapidly evolving is that you, you have these franchises. Like you think of ESPN, if you think of sports, you immediately think of ESPN. If you think of family entertainment, you immediately think of Disney. But, you know, what do you think when you think of ABC? And so what's kind of happening is I think you're going to see a consolidation under these big 10 umbrellas. For someone like Discovery, you know, they can own documentaries and outdoor show. I mean, they, they have these strong brand associations. And when you have a property like ABC where no one really knows what you go there to watch, I, I, I think you start questioning, well, why, why do I need this, period? What, what, what content can I put on this that I couldn't put on these other kind of temples and franchises? And I think that's what's going to happen there. Exactly. So if they do go that route of shedding those uh, channels, Mark, where do wh- what's the future? Theme parks, uh, kind of enhanced uh, content for future streaming, you know, monetization opportunities. Where, what do you see? Well, the consumers expect a lot of content. I mean, that's the, the fundamental reason why Netflix, we always talk about Netflix, holds that top spot is because you have muscle memory to go there first. You just turn on the TV and you know there's always something new, new comedy, new documentaries, new, new, new original programming. You always go there first. And so for people who want these kind of like franchises, you're thinking you, you, you just have to have a, a ton of content for it. So I don't think the investment of content diminishes at all. And in terms of those properties, I think they get sold off for their libraries, just like, you know, backfill content um, and, and that you can plug into where it's needed. But they don't become original sources of programming anymore, something like ABC at all. Interesting. Barton, want to ask you as well about the comment Malone made that Disney's problem is that they're going to face escalating sports uh, content costs for ESPN. And how do they deal with that? How do they manage that? Look, I think that uh, for, for all of the, the big sports focused TV networks, um, the problem is that Amazon says they're getting value out of Thursday night football. You know, they're paying twice what Fox paid for it. They don't have the affiliate fees um, and they're making money from that. That says that they have a different, better model for sports. And that really is concerning, I think, for the the, the guys who want to make their future in sports. I think for Disney, their partnership process is their attempt to, I think, deal with this. So if they find a partner um, in one of the big tech platforms like an Amazon or an Apple, for ESPN, then they've answered that question. Um, but if they don't, um, I think the economics take sports away from them. So, you know, I think they're just, um, you know, biding time until the future comes, which is sports on big tech. That's where it's going. Oh, sure. And Julie, I can understand why investors would be nervous about that, because who wants to go up against deep pocketed competitors like Apple and Amazon? I asked Iger specifically specifically this question because the NBA rights are coming up. Obviously, NBA is very important to, to ESPN. And I said, are you concerned about the big tech buyers coming in and pushing up those prices? He said, remember that ESPN is also valuable to the NBA. And yes, ES, uh, the NBA is valuable to us. But the other thing to keep in mind here is that Iger is going around and they are talking to potential partners, including the leagues, for ESPN to sell a minority stake. So while Iger says he's very much committed to sports, the question is what kind of strategic partner could come in, help manage not just the cost, but also transitioning those rights from purely linear to digital as well. So I think that there's a m- multiple potential outcomes here for ESPN, um, and there's no doubt that the tech companies are buyers. The question is just how that impacts what types of rights ESPN gets as it becomes a tech company as well. All right. 
Such a tough uh, business challenge. This, was, this one's going to be studied for a very long time, I think. Julia Borston, thank you. Barton Crockett and Mark Douglas, we appreciate it as well today. Coming up, the so-called wealth effect from the trillions of dollars Americans accumulated during the pandemic. It's still having an outsized impact on the economy. We'll look at where the spending is going and how it could impact the Fed's decision making. The exchange is back after this. Dow's down 75. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are off session lows. The Dow is down about 130 points after a very weak 30-year bond auction top of the hour. But we've trimmed some of those declines. That said, the S&P and NASDAQ are still looking to break their eight-day win streak, which for both was the longest stretch since 2021. Transdime is leading the S&P. It's trading at an all-time high in a tough market after posting strong earnings and raising its outlook and announcing a $1.4 billion acquisition to beef up its aerospace aftermarket business. These shares are up 56% since Jan 1 and on pace for their 10th straight day of gains, longest win streak since the start of the pandemic. A lot of tech names are on a hot win streak lately, too. On the flip side, medical device maker Becton Dickinson is the worst name in the S&P, having its worst day in over three years after missing on the top on the bottom line and giving disappointing guidance for 2024. They specifically called out currency headwinds and softening demand for COVID testing. Let's get over to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC News update. Bertha. Hey, Kelly. Lawyers for former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon set to appear today in a D.C. courtroom to appeal his conviction on criminal contempt of Congress charges. Bannon was sentenced to four months in federal prison for defying a subpoena by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The sentence was suspended pending the appeal. The average American is sitting on about $6,000 of credit card debt, according to a new report from TransUnion. That's the highest number we've seen in 10 years and an increase of about 15% from a year ago. TransUnion says the spike shows Americans are struggling to afford everyday expenses as we all deal with persistent inflation. And a 1932 portrait of Picasso's mistress, Marie Therese Walter, sold at Sotheby's for $139.4 million. That's the highest price paid for a painting so far this auction season. But it falls short of the most expensive Picasso work ever sold at auction, the Women of Algiers, which went for $179.4 million back in 2015. But, you know, Kelly, it'll only set you back maybe 20, 25 bucks to go see one of his famous paintings, The Three Musicians. It's on view right now at uh, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. So very nice. Pretty cheap. You can see it. Indeed. Bertha, thank you very much. Bertha Coombs. Coming up, the Dean of Valuation, NYU Professor Aswat Demoterin will join us with what's weighing on recent IPOs like Instacart and Birkenstock. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. We're in what's typically the busy season for IPOs, but this year it's unusually quiet, especially after some of the big debuts we saw earlier this fall. Bob Bassani is here to talk about what's tamping down activity, Bob. 
Well, you know, this is it, Kelly. The weeks before Thanksgiving usually bring a spate of large IPOs eager to go public before the holiday season starts. Except nothing is happening. There are no major IPOs on the docket for this month. And major IPO candidates, perennial candidates, Waystar, Panera Bread, Klarna, and even more perennial candidates like Reddit or Stripe, they seem like they're putting off their IPOs into 2024, if at all. So what's going on here? Well, first, we have this terrible performance for stocks in October that threw a wet blanket over a lot of things. We have higher for longer interest rates. We have a very poor aftermarket performance from the recent spate of IPOs this summer and the prospects of dramatically lower valuations. You put it all together, and that's causing a lot of IPO candidates to rethink or delay their IPOs. Now, you contrast this desert we're seeing this month with November, December of 2021. Look what happened. We had Rivian, the biggest IPO of the year this day, two years ago. We had Hertz, Braze, Sweet Green, and Allbirds. December 2020, right around there, we had Airbnb along with DoorDash, Sotera Health, Miravai Life Sciences. You see, what it, there's nothing here after all these big deals. And there wasn't anything last year either. But there's no big IPOs this month either. So there is a small window in December. Something could happen if market conditions improve. But if not, the 800 or so tech unicorns are having very unpalatable options. So number one, here's first option. You go public, likely with a substantial haircut. Option two, you stay private, also likely with a haircut, and you hope that your venture capital source will continue to fund you. Or three, you merge or go out of business. There's a fourth problem here, and that is AI is what's exciting, but the AI companies are still too small to go public. And a lot of these other companies are sitting out there that are old, not in AI, so you have competition now. That's the hot thing. And that's, by, by the way, Kelly, the reason ARM is held up so well is because that's part of that AI excitement. Most everything True. else is not. All right, Bob, stay with us. Let's uh, take a look at some of how the companies that have gone public recently have performed so far this quarter. Clavio down 23%, Instacart down 17%, Burke down 13%, Arm hanging in there like Bob mentioned, but still down about 4%. And the broader market is up too during that time. Let's turn to Aswat Demoterin. He's professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, you, you've done a lot of valuation work on these companies individually, Aswat. And so overall, do these prices reflect fair value in, in a more rational IPO market or... Are there market headwinds that are too formidable? You know, I, I think in a sense you can you can detect how healthy the IPO market is by the names of the companies going public. And if you look at the companies that have gone public, Instacart, everybody knows the name, Birkenstock, long-standing brand name, even Arm, the AI buzz. You're not seeing no-name companies losing money going public because in this market, they're going to get a reception that's not a good one. And I think what you've seen in the aftermarket is scaring people off, which is none of these companies have surged in the aftermarket. In healthy IPO markets, you go public often at a price too high and the price gets even higher. You're not seeing that happen in this market. And I think it's interesting to ask the question, why is that happening? Why is the IPO market so, so especially when the, the overall market doesn't seem to be doing badly, what is it about this year's you know, you know, bull market or rise in the market that you cannot, you know, that's not leading to the IPOs that you usually see? Yeah, and what do you think that answer is? And I think the answer is you know, risk capital started leaving this market in the middle of 2022. By risk capital, I include capital in IPOs, capital in uh, VCs invest in startups. It's not come back, even though the market is up, partly because this has been a, such an unbalanced market. This is not a market where you're seeing a rise coming from the bottom. 
it's those 10, 15, 20 big companies carrying it. This is a market where I think the bullishness is coming from fear, not greed. And IPOs need greed a lot more than fear. Bob, when do we get back to the greed part of the cycle? You know, we have, we've had the S&P and the Nasdaq on an eight-day win streak up until today. Do, do you think anyone's going to try to maybe jam things in there? I would agree with Aswath. I like to follow, besides prices, liquidity, which is money. How much money is sloshing around in the system? And we've had an unusually large amount of money sloshing around for the last 10 years. That's risk capital, as Aswath was saying, that goes into IPOs, it goes into venture capital. Uh, and I think we're seeing that recede a little bit uh, in the last year. 2022 is terrible. So if you use those as, as sort of uh, indicators of risk capital appetite, uh, I'm talking about uh, venture capital and IPOs, um, we're clearly seeing a receding risk capital. Maybe that's a good idea, Aswath. I don't know. It's been pretty excessive the I, last 10 years in terms of the money. Wouldn't you agree? I, I actually think it's healthy for risk capital to go back because the way I see it is we overcapitalize bad companies run by borderline sociopaths <laughs> and we push their market caps up to 10 billion and we're p still picking up the pieces. Maybe it's not so bad to have fewer IPOs and take a break from this process and let disruption play itself out. Because I think we've created damage in the way, in the name of disruption, and, and we're not ready for cleaning up that damage yet. Although, Aswath, it does raise questions about, you know, what the exit will be for industries like private equity um, or how to kind of, for those companies that are legit and, and want to monetize how they should do so. No, I think that, you know, that time will come. At the right price, people will buy these companies. I think you know, it's like selling a house, right? If housing prices have come down, a lot of people would sit in the house saying, I can't sell. That's not true. If you knock the price down 30%, you could. So something's got to give. You can't demand the pricing you thought you could get two years ago. So I think that if you, you know, settle into a, re into a reality check and build business models that people will buy into, I think those companies can go public, but I think sending companies prematurely into markets before they have a business model built up, which is what we did for a yeah. decade. All right, I well, hope that process. Everyone gives the sociopaths a hard time, but they're the ones changing the world, Aswa. <laughs> you know, it you, yeah. I, I was just we, watching the Uber names? movie, you know, I was super <laughs> pumped, and I, you know, it's I, you can see the good side and the bad side of it, letting disruptors run amok. Oh, Gentlemen, thank you. Aswad Demoter and, and our Babasani, we appreciate it. Still to come, inflation still high. Interest rates are at record highs. Why are consumers still spending? We have one possible answer next on The Exchange. Dow's back towards session lows. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Consumer spending remains pretty resilient despite higher prices and higher borrowing costs. What's behind the continued strength? Robert Frank is here with some possible answers for us. Robert? Yeah, one big possible answer is the wealth effect because Americans gained over $37 trillion. They added that to their wealth during COVID. The total net worth rising from $117 trillion to $154. The past three years has been the largest, fastest wealth boom in recent history for almost all wealth groups. Inequality actually declined over that period. The median net worth of American households jumped 37%. That is the fastest since the Fed started keeping this data in the 1980s. Where did all that wealth come from? Well, stocks and real estate fueled much of that growth. The value of stocks held by individuals surged by $9 trillion since 2019. Homes did even better, soaring by $16 trillion 
Now a total of $46 trillion in real estate wealth thanks to those rising prices. J.P. Morgan saying all this wealth could power consumers well into this rate cycle and any kind of job slowdown we might see. They estimate that the wealth effect could be up to four cents. So that means every additional dollar of household wealth could translate into four cents of additional spending. That would imply we could have $1.5 trillion in spending power still left. As they say, quote, consumers who feel wealthier, that is, they perceive an increase in their lifetime resources, will tend to spend more, especially now that so much of that financial wealth is in liquid money market or bond funds that they could cash out more easily than stocks. This is very juicy, especially because this kind of wealth of, let's call it the the middle class, if I may, contrasts a bit with what we just heard, which is that, as Bertha Coombs was reporting, as you've reported, some of the high-end parts of the market aren't looking as strong as they once were. I don't think anyone would cry if there's been a, a redistribution from the super high end to kind of the rest of the public, if that's what's going on here. But it is interesting that everything you're talking about comes at a time when these these auctions this week went, oh, they were a little bit soggy. Yeah, so if you look at the two economies, the rich and everyone else, everyone else depends on money. Money fuels their spending. The wealthy, they always have money. Even in bad times, it's more about the mood. So when you look at the wealthy, you look at these auctions, you look at that Picasso, which hammered for 121. The estimate was 120. They had basically an agreement to sell it at 120. Once they got up to that 120 expected price, no one was bidding. It was very quiet in the auction room. We saw some other big pieces. There was a Rothko that Sotheby's had that was estimated at 30 to 40. It sold for 22. This total sale was expected last night to hit 400 million. It hit 400 million, but just barely. So the wealthy just don't want to overpay. Just like in the stock market and other investments, the wealthy right now are holding back. They're pausing. The rest of the economy, because wages are strong and house values, home values are strong and rising, those are the two things that drive spending for the rest of the population. And that's why I think this wealth effect is like a reserve tank for this economy that hasn't been tapped yet and could continue consumer spending well into when unemployment may rise or excess savings start to be drawn down. Absolutely. No, it's a fascinating point. Robert, thank you. We appreciate it, Robert Frank. Coming up, Bernstein examining the impact the clean energy transition will have across multiple industries and issuing a warning for this ag equipment name. Can you guess it? Tweet me at KellyCNBC. The shares are down 15% the past three months. We'll see how much more pain could be ahead and why. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. HSBC just initiated Tesla with a rare bearish rating overnight, citing concerns over delivery capabilities and stock valuation. Shares are down 5.5% today. Speaking of EVs, Bernstein is taking a look at the impact of the clean energy transition across multiple different kinds of industries this week. They're actually looking at agriculture, where they're warning key machinery names could be at risk thanks to a reduction in corn ethanol acreage. Uh huh. Joining us to discuss that, Chad Dillard is senior analyst for U.S. machinery at Bernstein. And Chad, I was jumping up and down about this because when I think through the implications of a bearish turn for corn and ethanol, I'm thinking about Iowa caucuses. I'm thinking about politics. I'm thinking about there's so much that could potentially go into this. So tell us what you see uh, looming. Yeah, absolutely. So over the long term, uh, EV adoption is going to be a negative for agri-equipment companies. Um, ethanol accounts for about 10% of all gasoline consumption. And for every EV that gets on the road, uh, you're knocking out about 50 gallons of ethanol. 
So assuming uh, the penetration continues to increase, that means the structural impairment of ethanol. It also means that you probably need less acres to grow corn. Um, so U.S. corn land is about you know 90 million acres in the U.S. And you know 40% of all U.S. domestic corn production goes into ethanol. So if the EV transition actually plays out as expected, we need 10% fewer corn acres. And that means you probably need a smaller ag equipment fleet. And so I think the addressable market potentially shrinks by about 10%. Um, and the earnings power of these companies fall by a similar amount. And yeah. it probably represents from an equity value basis, you know, 10 to 15% downside. Yeah, so I just want to restate your, your finding there so everyone catches it, that corn acreage could be down 10%, uh, headwind for companies like Deer. That was the mystery chart we teased. Why is it that that acreage wouldn't just go to soybeans or go to something else that would be, you know, it, where the ag sector would be indifferent? Yeah, look, it's it's absolutely possible. Um, there are a couple of alternatives. So there's renewable diesel that could potentially soak up about eight million acres. Um, there's uh, bioethylene, and then there's also also ethanol-based uh, sustainable aviation fuel. But the challenge with a lot of those is that the economics aren't exactly there. In some cases, um, the tax credits are, aren't available. Yeah. So, is it? I mean, because we could also be talking about a reduction in farm income broadly. I mean, it, literally an ag GDP, if it's not offset by something. That's why I'm suspicious or, or wondering, I mean, won't farmers be able to turn, uh, be innovative and, and able to look for other cash crops that could supplant that, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think that'd be possible. I mean, I think one, uh, one potential opportunity for them uh, to benefit is through precision agriculture, uh, which would actually improve the economics of farmers, and it'll probably go to the, the much larger farmers. Um, let's talk about deer specifically, which is kind of the, the big name here. Shares are down 15% in the past three months. Why is that primarily, do you think? Yeah, so we've been actually cautious on the ag cycle. Uh, it really comes down to the fact that, you know, relative to normalized levels, um, demand's way higher, so the company's over-earning. Um, and then secondly, if you look at just like farm economics, um, just, you know, farmer profitability's come down pretty significantly um, over this past year. And the challenge is, you know, this year's profits buy next year's equipment. So it's looking increasingly like we're you know, around peak ag for uh, for deer and in the broader ag equipment cycle. Why would we be at peak ag? Where? Why would we be facing a, a demand reduction in the next couple of years? Uh, so farmers just uh, don't have the cash to actually buy equipment. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. Um, they make that decision that way. And so I think, you know, if you're looking at, you know, where demand would be for, for 2024, it'll probably be down. Interesting. And then finally, we you know, we look at deer, but there are other names, Agco, for instance, 100% of its revenues are exposed to agriculture. Who else? Yeah, so I think the, the main agriculture names, obviously there's deer, um, there's Agco. Um, in the U.S. also there's, there's CNH Industrial. And those all would potentially uh, face headwinds. So like I said, a lot to ponder here, Chad, uh, if you write about this peak ag and the decline in ethanol that this country uh, could be heading into. Appreciate you joining us today to explain it. Absolutely. Thank you. Chad Dillard, Senior Analyst for Machinery over at Bernstein. That does it for The Exchange today. But coming up on Power Lunch, another big market-moving event. Fed Chair Jay Powell will make his speech in just a couple of minutes' time. We'll bring you the headlines and the market impact. Dow's down 130. Dom will join me on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.